Okay, good morning everyone. Welcome back to our book study. We are in the last few chapters of Brian Wolfmuller's Has American Christianity Failed? We'll be looking at prayer here in a second. We're going to wrap up our section on prayer today one way or another, and then um, God willing we'll go into the eschatology chapter, the study of the last things. But I do have an announcement to make. You have chosen... Martin Chemnitz and Caridion, Ministry, Word, and Sacraments for our next text. Now, this is print on demand. So, before, I mean, obviously, you can go out and rush out and buy it if you want. But what I'm going to do is, is have our office look into doing a bulk order. Maybe we'll get a discount. Maybe they'll all come in at once. So, um, I think presently they're somewhere around like just under $30. Maybe we can get that down a little bit. Uh, it is going to take two or three weeks to find, and that way all our pagination will be the same, and uh, we'll, have a, we'll have a smoother experience than everybody going to eBay or Books or wherever else you hunt and look for used ones, and everybody's on a different page and maybe a different translation, who knows. So, But you have selected this text, and I'm very excited. I'm thrilled. I think this is going to be a wonderful study. Uh, Chemnitz is a brilliant, brilliant thinker and extremely underrated uh, amongst contemporary Lutherans. So, looking forward to studying that with you. Okay, before we get into Wolfmuller, let's open with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so as we get back into the last parts of the chapter on prayer, um, we'll, we'll pick up somewhere around uh, page 203. And of course, we've been looking at maybe two different problems that have run rampant in American Christianity. The first problem would be seeing ex corde prayer that is prayer from the heart, spontaneous prayer, as the only valid prayer before God. What's happened here is we've lost, and we, I just mean Christians in general, have lost the idea of praying the Psalms and the Lord's Prayer. And what a tragedy that is. I have encountered evangelical Christians who don't know the Lord's Prayer, who don't have it committed to heart, because why would they? It's just like any other chunk of scripture from the Bible. Maybe they have it, maybe they don't. But what a loss, what a disconnect from historic Christianity to not have the Lord's Prayer written into your heart. And in fact, I've ran into uh, an evangelical Christian who didn't know what the Lord's Prayer was. Because again, it's just some random chunk in the Bible. It's just some little section of Scripture. Why would I know what that is? So you can see how much we've lost with this idea that if it's not spontaneous, it's not real prayer. All right. The second thing then is when we're looking at spontaneous prayer itself, as we experience broadly in American Christianity, we find it's very different than the kind of spontaneous ex corde prayers that we find in the scriptures, where those types of situational ex corde uh, spontaneous prayers we find in the scriptures are thoroughly rooted and grounded in what God has said and what God has done. That is, they're, all, they're acknowledging that God has already initiated the conversation by way of his word. And so these prayers are responding to that word. Even if you think of something like the Magnificat in Mary, this is a, here you would have an example of an ex corde spontaneous prayer. And it is so thoroughly biblical. It is so thoroughly textual. It is largely modeled off of 
Hannah's prayer in the Old Testament. So you can see that God's people, even when they think in terms of spontaneity and prayer from the heart, they're thinking in terms of already, they're participating in the conversation that has already been initiated by God. Okay? So, anything wrong with escorting prayer? No. In fact, the default, my default assumption is that if, if you're a Christian, you're praying spontaneously throughout the day, even if it's just very short. God have mercy, God help, God forgive me, thanks be to God, thank you God, um, you know, etc. Whew, that was close. God forgive me my sins, you know, bless this food, whatever the case may be, bless this person, help this person, God I don't know what to do. All these kinds of just one-liner prayers, it's, it's kind of my assumption that this permeates the life of most Christians to one degree or another. And of course, we would only want to increase that, even even going so far as like what St. Paul would say, pray continually. Um, now, that that language that Paul has there is beautiful, but, and some take it to mean one thing, some take it to be another. I, I just kind of like it as a both and, but some take it to mean an admonition toward regular prayer, to be continuously in prayer, regular prayer. And others just think it means have that kind of your heart so oriented towards God that the spontaneous prayer and conversation you have with him is just ongoing throughout the day. I like both. You know, I, whatever that te- specific text means, why not both? So spontaneous prayer, great. Written prayers, great. Memorized prayers, great. Formulaic prayers, great. All prayer, great. <laughs> That's the point. So <laughs> pray away. And we've got these beautiful blessings and promises that God will hear us uh, no matter how it is that we pray. Okay? Um, now, I'll give you just a few, a few tips that I kind of found helpful because I, as I grew up as a Lutheran, obviously you're praying on Sunday mornings and there's some kind of family devotional life going on, but then you get, you get spat out into your own world as you leave the nest for college or work or young adulthood, and that baton pass sometimes you know, is bobbled by the, by the person who's supposed to receive it and run. And you sometimes have to pick up the pieces or different events and circumstances take you away from a regular prayer life. And you say, you know, that's something I'd like to have more regular. And there are a few things that, you know, the catechism gives us and that common sense gives us. And, and it, all of these things really ultimately have their origin in God and in his scriptures. So the idea of praying morning and evening and at meals pretty standard basic times. Morning is going to be harder. You just have to find where it works in your schedule. But here are some tips and tricks. You want to schedule an appointment and keep your appointment. And honor your appointment just as if you were honoring it with another human being, only this is the divine one, the Lord of all. And so then as you honor your appointment with him in the morning or in the evening, um, and if you don't, now it's, you have a really concrete thing to confess. Lord, I'm so sorry I missed our, our appointment. Or I let, I let my oatmeal get in the way. Or my email get in the way. You know, When you're tempted not to, not to pray, I learned this from a pastor. He said, say out loud what you're thinking. I'm thinking it's going to be more beneficial for me to read the news than it is for me to talk to God. Just say that out loud. Does that sound right? That doesn't sound right, so now I'm going to pray. <laughs> Into the temptation of opening the news app. All right. So we're going, to keep, we're going to set an appointment and keep an appointment. The other thing we're going to do is we're going to keep our devotional life really, really simple. We're going to realize that this is analogous to exercising the body. You go out into the gym and you, know, you buy your membership and you go tear it up for an hour. I can just about guarantee you're not going to be in the gym the next day. You're going to be so sore. You're going to be laid up with ice and thinking, can I get a refund? How do I get out of that membership? So too with jumping in too heavy, too fast with the devotional life, which is, so we have to kind of fight that zeal, which is good, but like, like the devil's a master of the judo arts and can use our momentum and 
push us over into some sort of extremity that's unsustainable, and he's happy to do that. So we have to humble ourselves enough to say, no, this is sufficient lifting for me right now. Maybe that's as simple as the Lord's Prayer, okay? And then whatever is on your heart and mind to pray for. And then we can expand from there. So the Catechism gives us the real basic template of the Ten Commandments, the Creed, the Lord's Prayer. You can add in the Luther's morning or evening prayer. You can add in any ex corde prayers. One thing that I've found really helps with ex corde prayer is to have a little framework at least. So um, one framework that's very helpful is I'm going to pray for my family and maybe my close friends, those people I I know have needs. And then I'm going to pray for the church and I can think globally and locally, even down to my congregation and pastor and the leaders. And I'm going to pray for the government, okay? This at at the national, at the state level, um, etc., all the way down, if you want. But that's the template. So, so my my ex corde spontaneous prayers are based on a frame by which I'm going to even just even if it's just a second, you know. Lord God, help the church. Help those whom you've put in place. Sustain them in faith and right preaching. Uh, Lord God, help those who govern us in the left-hand kingdom. Uh, sustain them. Lead them to uh, repentance if that's necessary. And that kind of thing. And then, dear Father, you know, and then you might pray for your family members and friends specifically, and then you're done. So even if you just did... Um, the Lord's Prayer and then these ex corde prayers, I mean, you're really looking at a matter of minutes. And that's kind of where you want to fall. You want to fall in a matter of minutes when you're just starting. Now, I know many of you have been praying for many, many years, maybe even longer than I've been alive, and so you've got this down pat, and that's great, and this message isn't for you then. This message is for those of us who are trying to pick up the pieces again. We've fallen off of the, off of the habit or uh, we've never been taught these things. So we're going to find a place, uh, and, and we're going to, oh, well, I didn't get there yet. We're going to find a time that set an appointment. We're going to keep it short. We're going to find a place in our home that's distraction-free, wherever that may be. If it's in the shower, it's in the shower. If it's at your bedside, it's at your bedside. Um, wherever your, your phone and your computer and your TV and all the distractions are not, okay? That's a really helpful thing. And then, really, the only other guidance I would have here is pray out loud. Even if, you know, you got a busy family, got family running all over the place, you can still pray just barely audibly, even if you're almost whispering, you know, but praying out loud makes a huge difference in terms of your own perception of prayer. And it's so easy when it's just your inner monologue to float around and be praying the Lord's Prayer one minute, and before you know it, you're thinking about something else or you're asleep. <laughs> you know. So to say it out loud helps you be mindful, helps your, you be focused, and also just helps give you a sense of completion. I said that prayer. I know that God heard it. And I think that tying into what we're coming up into in our study with Wolfmuller, prayer and its spiritual warfare aspects, I do think that there's obvious advantage to saying it out loud. So if there are any little nasty servants of Satan floating about, they get to be made miserable by the sound of your prayers. You're thanking and praising God and you're petitioning him as well. So it's just really those basic things. Build up from there. Scale down if you need to scale down because you're going through a stressful time or whatever. But just try to, try to keep that regular practice as much as you can. As you pray out loud, even with your spontaneous prayers, you're going to find yourself becoming a better prayer or, or at least maybe even... Uh, I mean, not that eloquence matters, but you're going to be a little more satisfied. You're not going to just feel like you're st stammering and stumbling about all the time, which we always feel when we're just starting out with anything. Uh, but as you pray more, you'll kind of... And what's funny is, as you pray ex corde spontaneously, 
you also gather your own little isms, your own little ways of praying and modes and methods. And that's an important lesson too, because you'll find out that nobody can be spontaneous all the time. And you're going to have your own little verbal and mental grooves you slide into, and that's fine. That's great. It helps you along. Okay, so I just wanted to give those preliminary comments on prayer before we go into Wolfmuller and wrap this chapter up. Is there, uh, is there, are there any questions or comments or anything that maybe you want to give some advice, anything that you found particularly helpful in your prayer life, whether it's memorized prayers or reading prayers or uh, ex corde prayers? There's all kinds of different methodologies out there for ex corde prayers, you know, um, different frameworks that you can memorize and use. Those are all good. Go for them. I mean, um, just a quick question, uh, commenting on kneeling while you pray. Is yeah. that uh, recommended? Is that a form of being out speaking out loud? I think it's a I think it's a great thing to do because you're you're conforming your body with what your mind is doing. And we really eschew that in the West, and it's a mistake. As you read the Psalms, you'll find all this kind of bodily language. I lift up my hands. I prostrate myself before you. I weep. I tear my garments. I fast. I cover myself in sackcloth and ash. You say, well, all that sounds a little extreme. Okay, (laughs) fair enough. Maybe your wife would be a little weirded out if you were in the fireplace putting ashes on your forehead one random Tuesday afternoon. All right, fair enough. Uh, But what we see in the scriptures is that the whole body's engaged. And I think if we can do that even in small ways, that's okay. Now, of course, just be cognizant of your health. Don't torture yourself. Don't do anything that, you know, you're going to regret for the rest of the month if you're on your knees for a little too long and you strain something. So, um, yeah, even, even even with the tradition in the, in the Christian church of asceticism, you know, fasting or kneeling or prostrating or staying up late or that's a vigil or other physical things we might do, there's always a sense of moderation and balance and stewardship and overall health. So we want to keep that principle in place, even if we're going to do things that maybe are a little uncomfortable to our, to our bodies or um, whatever else the case may be. That's a helpful thing. I would think... Um, I would think, though, out loud is more of a priority than bodily posture, but if you can do some kind of bodily posture, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Any, uh, any other things floating around? Okay. The sky's the limit. Lots of ways to pray. But um, to, uh, back to kind of Wolf Mueller's theme. The beauty is... Uh, the beauty of all of this is humbling ourselves and learning how to pray from God and from his word and then using that to shape and form our own spontaneous or ex corde prayers. So that's at the heart of the section on 198, the words to say where you know God gives us the word. It's one of the best reasons, if you need it, as if you needed a reason, to have your kiddos in church on Sunday morning. They're absorbing and learning how to pray. We all are. We're all absorbing and learning how to pray. And prayer is a perishable skill, of course, too, just in the sense that uh, in the same way you can kind of grow in your comfortability with prayer and develop that, um, you can lose it, too. And so that's, an, that's yet another reason to uh, be engaged in the divine service and let that divine service flow out into your weekdays and lead you back then on Sunday morning. Over on 203, we get to the new material, um, Praying Against the Devil. We'll spend a little bit of time as we close out this chapter looking at spiritual warfare. So, top of 203, Wolf Mueller writes... We are tempted to think of prayer as a peaceful event. All is calm, all is quiet and serene. We have a sugary and sentimental picture of prayer. The Bible's teaching is different. Now, I think he's overstating his case rhetorically to make a point. So, you know, obviously I think there are times where prayer is serene. I don't think we have to push back. 
Um, and there are times where prayer is an oasis, to be sure. Uh, but let's work with his rhetoric. The Bible's teaching is different. Prayer is warfare. We take up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and we pray. When we pray to the Lord, we are praying against the devil. When we pray for the Lord's kingdom, we are praying against the devil's kingdom. When we pray for the Lord's will to be done, we are praying that the will of the world, the flesh, and the devil would come to nothing. Martin Luther understood that our prayers to the Lord for his kingdom were also against the devil and his kingdom. Now, quoting from the large catechism, we need to know this. All our shelter and protection rest in prayer alone, for we are far too weak to deal with the devil and all his power and followers who set themselves against us. They might easily crush us under their feet. Therefore, we must consider and take up those weapons with which Christians must be armed in order to stand against the devil. For what do you imagine has done such great things up till now? What has stopped or quelled the counsels, purposes, murder, and riot of our enemies by which the devil thought he would crush us together with the gospel? It was the prayer of a few godly people standing in the middle like an iron wall for our side. Otherwise, they would have witnessed a far different tragedy. They would have seen how the devil would have destroyed all Germany in its own blood. But now our enemies may confidently ridicule prayer and make a mockery of it. However, we shall still be a match both for them and the devil by prayer alone. If we only pray, persevere diligently and do not become slack. For whenever a godly Christian prays, Dear Father, let your will be done. God speaks from on high and says, Yes, dear child, it shall be so, in spite of the devil and all the world. All right, thus far Luther. And then Wolfmiller just continues by writing, Prayer is an act of subversion, an act of treason against the world, an act of rebellion against the devil. When we are baptized in the Lord's name and transferred into his kingdom, we are also set against the devil and his kingdom of darkness. When Jesus calls us his friends, he makes us the devil's enemies. To be marked with the cross of Christ is to be tattooed with a target for the devil's assaults. We are therefore at war, and we wage war with the word of God and prayer. All right. So, on to one more quote from the Large Catechism. Then we'll break and see if you have any feedback or if it's all uh, straightforward enough. The Catechism reads, If we would be Christians, therefore, we must surely expect and count on having the devil with all his angels and the world as our enemies. They will bring every possible misfortune and grief upon us. For where God's word is preached, accepted, or believed, and produces fruit, There the Holy Cross cannot be missing. And let no one think that he shall have peace. He must risk whatever he has upon earth, possessions, honor, house and estate, wife and children, body and life. Now this hurts our flesh and the old Adam. The test is to be steadfast and to suffer with patience in whatever way we are assaulted and to let go whatever is taken from us. Excuse me, my allergies have been pestering me. All right, so what do you make of all of this? What do you make of this claim that prayer is warfare? And uh, have you uh, any thoughts or any experiences with this kind of sentiment or thing? There's a hand up here in the front right corner. Yeah, many times in the charismatic circles, you actually hear people say, in Jesus' name, we cast you out, devil. Mm, yes, um, right. Is that biblical, or is that type of prayer? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> so, okay, so Pentecostals, largely not something we as Lutherans identify with. Um, might there be a time where a Christian could pray, in Jesus' name, we cast you out, devil? Yeah, sure, sure. So let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater on that one. Um, but as, as the scriptures say, if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. The only power we have as Christians is the power of the name of Jesus. And I think um, I will say this, that 
you know, whether it's whether it's that specific kind of one-liner or a different kind of one-liner, it is good to have one-liners. There's a, a very famous one-liner that uh, from Eastern Orthodoxy, Kleinig, John Kleinig, Lutheran uh, seminary professor, picks it up in his book Grace Upon Grace and gives it to us and commends it. So similar, even though we wouldn't agree with Eastern Orthodoxy on many of its main tenets, uh, we would still acknowledge the words themselves as good and wholesome, indeed based on a biblical prayer. But um, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, the so-called Jesus prayer. It's a wonderful prayer to pray, uh, you know, uh, these kind of one-liner prayers when we're disturbed by some kind of sinful thought or impulse or evil occurrence or something creeps us out. Um, or we otherwise feel that we've been threatened or jeopardized by sin and uncleanness, um, to simply have a prayer like that, a one-liner, and recognize that what we're doing is bringing our own heart back to back toward God with such a prayer, right? And driving away the evil one that's trying to come between us and God. So, yeah, thank you for that. All right, anything? Uh, there's a hand here. Sure. Maybe this is just a personal superstition, but it this would be the time to check if this is biblical. I feel more comfortable praying out loud if I'm praying a psalm or the Lord's Prayer, mm-hmm. but the personal supplications to God, I always try to either say in my head or write down, but not say out loud. I only, see. you know, obviously I want that to go straight to the Lord, but not be heard by any outside forces. Is that keeping myself safe, or you just don't want the devil to know what you're thinking, I guess? Mm, yeah. What am I worried well, about? What pro- am I afraid of? <laughs> yeah, he probably already knows. That's the, he's, a, he's a master of a thousand arts and has had millennia to study us and our personalities. And that's the funny thing. The devil knows us way better than we know ourselves. He's looking at it like, I mean, think about it, the viewpoint this guy has. He's been able to trace you. Like, he sees you exactly like the way you go out and look at a bean plant that you put in your yard, and you've watched it grow the whole time, and then you've watched it seasonally. Like, he knows your whole family. He knows your lineage. He knows what's worked, what hasn't worked. He knows the weaknesses. He, You know, he's had all... So, um, while I can appreciate the sentiment, I don't think that's a fear at all, um, legitimately. Yeah, because the devil already knows... And he knows what our weaknesses are. He knows what our, our thoughts are. And in praying those things, we're commending ourselves to the Father and entrusting ourselves to him anyway. And that whole prayer, thy will be done, is, is praying that, you know, that means his will over... Like, that's not a prayer of resignation. Like, okay, but thy will be done is probably not going to be good, but I love you anyway, so okay, go for it. Uh, that's not... That's the prayer of resignation. Thy will be done is... As we hear Luther via Wolfmuller, a prayer that God would crush the will of the devil, the world, and the sinful nature, which are over and against his will. So thy will be done is not a prayer of resignation, but an an offensive prayer. Um, So anyway, I think that that we're entrusting ourselves into the hand of the Father, knowing that he's going to crush whatever's evil in us, or the devil, the world, or whatever. So I don't think we have to worry about it. Yeah. Great question, though. Great question. Okay. So, yeah, prayer is warfare. What might be a pitfall? Well, you're probably all familiar with the language of prayer warrior. And if prayer is warfare, well, then why not? And I understand. I've got no real issue with the phrasing itself. It does lend itself to a possible error, though. And that is that we would see ourselves as prayer warriors and thus see ourselves as having strength in and of ourselves. And then we might even come to another false conclusion that, hey, my prayers are being answered or not on the basis of my strength. But then, hey, look, uh, Joe over there has been a Christian much longer than I and he reads his Bible more. I need to get him to pray because he's a more powerful prayer warrior than I am. Or, oh, who better than Pastor Rhodey? He's a pastor. He's supposed to... 
God's not up there going like, oh, okay, well, you, I can see you flexing some really powerful muscles there, guy. I'm going to listen to your prayer. Uh, so we need to, we need to kind of f- flush that out of our thinking. That, um, and if we do, then the idea that prayer is powerful, that's because of the one to whom we're praying, not because of any power innate or inherent within us. Makes sense? And if we want to see ourselves as warriors, that is, as fighting against the powers of darkness by appealing to he who is light, then well and good. And Luther's got that beautiful statement about the Reformation where he sees that the only reason the Reformation wasn't utterly violently crushed is because of a few saints praying. And I have often felt that that's the only reason that Faith Lutheran Church exists. Because when you look around us in this just sea of paganism and consumerism and false Christianity, how do we exist? This shouldn't be happening. And I've often thought it's probably because with each passing generation, we have four or five old ladies and old men who are daily remembering to pray for us. And that's the only reason we exist. So your prayers are... um, they are maybe the most underrated and least appreciated aspect of our spirituality. They're absolutely essential. Your prayers do more good than anything else you can possibly do. It's where, you know, even if you, you know, think of the extreme, you're bound up in your house, you can't get out, maybe you're bedridden or something. It's like, I can't do anything for my neighbor. You can pray for your neighbor, which is better than literally anything else you can do for your neighbor. So no matter who we are in this life, the most important thing you can do for your neighbor is always available to you as you pray for them and their well-being. So, yeah, prayer is a, prayer is a fantastic thing. Prayer warriors, rightly understood, no problem with it. The power isn't ours. The power is God's. With our prayers, we are, in fact, affecting things. We are, in fact... Uh, driving back the devil of the world and our own sinful nature. So, everything to be commended in terms of prayer. Okay, shall we move on a little further? Yes, please. Well, one quick question, Ian. Um, in, in relations with other people, uh, if you could comment on the expression, uh, thoughts and prayers are with you. Uh, and also, second question, Could we ask a friend who's in distress whether they would like prayer and what I should specifically be praying for them for? Is that proper? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful thing. Um, My thoughts and prayers are with you, or thoughts and prayers has become cliche in our culture and ridiculed in our culture. And so that's the only thing I think you want to be cognizant of. And and you do want to be cognizant of the fact that you, like if you say, I'll pray for you, do you mean that? You really should mean that. So find a different thing to say if you're not actually going to pray. Or say it and write yourself a note and mean it and do it. You know, those would be some fair observations. But generally speaking, among Christians, I think the assumption is we should pray for each other. We will pray for each other. Maybe it's more honest to say, I will remember you in my prayers today. Or I will say a prayer for you. That's a prayer, right? Um, or, any t- hey, any time the Lord brings this to my mind, you know I'm going to be praying for you. Like those are those are much more accurate, honest expressions, <laughs> unless we write it down and do in fact remember it in our daily prayers. Um, and then yes, uh, I think your other uh, the other things you mentioned are very well and good. They all, those are also good because obviously you can pray about something or pray for someone without their express and written consent. But uh, I think also what you're doing there is you're offering yourself by phrasing it that way you're offering yourself if there's further dialogue or if there's maybe maybe they have some hurt that they would like you to help them bear and maybe you can help shoulder that and offer them some words of comfort i am a big fan of this as far as i mean i don't i'm not one for methodologies of of outreach and like if you died, if you died tonight, where would you be going? Heaven or hell, kind of stuff. I think that that's 
salesman-esque and especially younger generations really sniff out the phoniness and just want nothing to do about it, nothing to do with it. But if you, on the other hand, were to say, you know, however this might flow naturally in the conversation, I'm not giving you the context, but if you were to say, is, is there something that I can... Um, that you would like me to pray for, or can I pray for you in any way, or is there some, you know, that's a much more, it's a much less offensive, much more welcoming way, and sometimes also gains like that entry, they open the door of their heart a little and let you know where they're hurting, and you might give them some comfort or some support, and it might end up being that you don't just pray for them, but that you actually have some tangible way of helping them, or some something that you want them to listen to or hear that maybe you've run across online. So uh, I think that all of, for all of those reasons, Barry, your suggestions are, uh, are just great there. Yeah, really helpful. Okay, any other reflections? We're doing okay. So over on 205, let's just skip ahead. I think we've got to his point that prayer is warfare. If we look at 205, the third paragraph from the top, Wolfmiller writes, In this way, we also understand prayer as the beginning of what we normally call evangelism. It is the Christian's desire that more and more sinners would be rescued from the grasp of hell and delivered from their sins through faith in Christ. Knowing conversion of the sinner is the Lord's work, the church begins the task of evangelism by praying and asking that the Lord's will would be done, that his kingdom would come, that the preaching of his word would bear the fruit he promised it would, um, namely that it will not return void or empty. Okay, and then here in big print, uh, there is a quote-unquote mission panic or quote-unquote evangelism crisis that grips American Christianity. Boy, does it ever. But especially the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, I think. Scare tactics are used to motivate and move people to get them busy doing churchy evangelistic stuff. Or, I would add, feeling very guilty if they don't. American Christianity often invites worry and even fear over the lost condition of sinners. Jesus has not authorized us to worry. He has not sanctioned us to be afraid. He has told us to pray, to love, to fight against the devil, and to trust that he rules and reigns all things for the sake of his church. And then he says, see Ephesians 1, 22 through 23. So as we're praying, we're recognizing that prayer is also a central part of evangelism because we're praying that his word would go forth. And indeed it does. I mean, there are countless ways for people to hear the gospel and run across the gospel in our culture, including anytime we have a natural opportunity to bring it up ourselves, we're happy to do so. But, you know, you don't have to spend much time on YouTube or Twitter or any other platform to eventually hear or read the gospel. So what we do want is to pray that God Will, that God's will would be done, that God would keep his promises, that his word would not return void, and that his will would be done, namely that many sons would be brought to glory. And so that is a way in which then the warfare becomes concrete in our neighbor. We're praying that God would in fact snatch them away from the devil's grasp and bring them into the church. So I think that this is like like the best evangelism scheme of all. Pray that God would grow the church. Pray that God would uh, deepen the faith of those that he has called into the church. Pray that God would retain the sheep that have been brought in over and against their, our wandering ways. These are some of the very best things we can do for evangelism. Just a little more with uh, Wolf Miller, because I think this is such an, an important point. At least if you've run across this in the church, this is a very important message for you to hear. If you haven't, you're blissfully ignorant of all this. It's great. But unfortunately, I as a pastor get to hear this all the time. It's like sometimes uh, 
the hierarchy of the church doesn't matter which denomination you're in. It's like this uh, multi-marketing scheme, like a pyramid thing. So the guy at the top is he's got to yell at the guys underneath him to sell more, and they got to yell to the, the guys underneath to sell more and sell more and, and so on and down it goes right until you got these people who are breaking their necks selling so that everybody else up the chain gets a cut of the pie. Well, unfortunately, that's how much of our hierarchy works in the churches in America. Is like the top guy, whether you call him a bishop or a president or a grand pumba or whatever the title may be. He, he calls everybody together and he says, the church is dying. And everybody goes, oh, and grabs their pearls. And he goes, we have to change or the church will die. Oh, out comes the flashy PowerPoint and documents. How are we going to change? What should we do? Tell us we don't want to die. This just in, it's the new program. Wow, that looks a lot like the old glossy program from 10 years ago, just kind of like you changed the title and the colors a little bit, and, and that didn't work, but this one will work. Oh, everybody buys in. We've got to do this or we'll die. And so, okay, off we go. And then, and then, you know, another part of this is always just um, you, so... A pastor, of course, finds his way a little bit up the ladder in the multi-marketing scheme. And so, uh, you know, you have not been doing a good job with evangelism, we're told. You need to tell your people to do a better job with evangelism. And so everybody gathered around the Grand Pumbaa gets told how terrible they're doing at evangelism and how souls are going to hell with every snap of the finger with every passing second of time and that gets them all fearful and so they come home and berate their congregations we need to change everything and go out and win souls for Jesus and who knows, just mow down all our theology, anything that could offend anyone water it all down, we've got to change or die, people are going to hell and when you, when you have this in mass what do you have? You have an entire church that just looks like culture and just becomes a mishmash of oh it doesn't matter Believe whatever you want to believe. Live however you want to live. Just come on Sunday and sit in the movie theater chairs and write, your, write in your uh, automatic uh, monthly deducted tithes from your credit card. So you see how this works. And it's really despairing. And it's really, from a, from a Lutheran standpoint, this is all law-based, guilt-based. And then it ruins evangelism. And it takes the joy away from evangelism because how much do you want to go share Jesus with somebody after you've been told all that and all that's the reason and rationale? Hardly at all. So this is a beautiful, refreshing way of looking at it. It's like we can get rid of all the crisis, fear, and panic and all this, the church is going to die nonsense. And we can instead pray confidently, trusting the Lord, casting the, the seeds with the sower everywhere, and entrusting that he will cause that to work. We don't need to change who we are. We don't need to water anything down. There's no need for mission panic or evangelism crisis. So just want to give you a little bit of that background so you can know what we're up against if this doesn't resonate with you. Uh, bottom of 205, Wolf Miller continues, crisis, panic, and fear all undermine God's ordering of the world. The evangelism crisis is no exception. In God's ordering of the world, preachers preach, parents teach their children the words of Scripture, and friends serve one another in love and speak of the Lord's mercy in their conversations. This good order of things is broken up by the, I love that he keeps capitalizing this, evangelism crisis. In a crisis, everyone is a minister. Everyone is a missionary. Everyone is a preacher and evangelist. American Christianity lives in this crisis mode. Every conversation must be about, quote-unquote, sharing Jesus. Boy, that's not going to make anyone annoyed or think you're obnoxious or not want to be around you. Every conversation must be about sharing Jesus or correcting your fellow Christian, something uh, that they have said or done. we, We all have met these people. Every act of love must be motivated toward conversion. And the normal stuff of daily living is put on the back burner to serve the urgency of the mission. This is evangelism motivated by worry, which of course is faithlessness. 
and mission driven by anxiety. It is not what is taught by Jesus. Worry and anxiety are undone by prayer. Thy kingdom come is a confession that the coming of the kingdom and the growth of the church is the Lord's work, not ours. Paul reminded the Corinthians, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Faith sets us free to live freely in our vocations, free to love our neighbor without worry, free to speak the Lord's law and gospel to our neighbor without panic, and free to fight against the devil in the confidence that his kingdom is already destroyed. Faith prays. Christians live in the confidence that the Lord delights in us, that he helps us, that he keeps us and never leaves us. We know that in all the storms and troubles of life and death, God's grace cannot fail. He hears us, he loves us, and he delights in being our Savior. All right, I think a great end uh, to a good chapter, and especially um, doing some good positive and negative things there in terms of our view of prayer and our view of evangelism. Now, prayer is maybe the single greatest way we can engage in the evangelistic talk or evangelistic uh, uh, work. Okay. Any reflections you have on the chapter on prayer? We're doing okay. All right. Well, we've got about 10 minutes left. We can um, go into chapter 10 and we'll introduce this. What Wolf Mueller does at the beginning is he really lays out a thorough scriptural foundation for some of our, and I'm going to use this term, probably slip into it more than I mean to, but eschatology. So eschaton um, has to do with the last things or the end. And obviously when you put on ology, it just means the study of, and so the study of the end things or the last things or the end times. That's what's meant by eschatology. He has titled chapter 10, The End of the World as We Know It, and quotes Luke 21, 28. Now, when these things begin to to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Do you remember who spoke those words? Jesus. And they're such wonderful words, because much like the end of the previous chapter, where worry and anxiety are not, are not authorized, <laughs> the same is true when it comes to the end times and to all the signs that this world is coming to its conclusion. In fact, Jesus says that these are not to endorse, induce worry and anxiety in us, but rather we are to lift up our heads because they are symptoms of what? His return! So these are great things. I think, it's, I think it's in Isaiah. This is off the top of my head, sorry, just a little off the cuff. But he, he likens the Lord's, that when the Lord returns, the whole cosmos begins to shake and become unraveled and undone. And I think that's such a beautiful image and picture when we see earthquakes and famines and people going crazy and the world, you know, just shaken from its moorings and everything changing and everything collapsing. We shouldn't think, you know, oh no, what's happening? We should think, oh yes, the Lord is drawing near and this is about to end. The more violently it shakes, the more near he is to us. So it's this beautiful kind of imagery and it's right, right in keeping with what our Lord says. Look, when you see all the End, sign, end time signs taking place, straighten up and raise up your head because your redemption is drawing near. That's something we rejoice in the bad stuff, but it's just that the bad stuff we know precedes the really good stuff is coming. 
Wolf Mueller writes, American Christianity is obsessed with the end times. It is part of the quote-unquote crisis mentality discussed in the previous chapter. American Christianity is filled with quote-unquote prophecy buffs and teachers who preach with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. There is always an eye on current events looking for prophetic fulfillment. In fact, American Christianity is largely caught up in a particular view of the last things called dispensational premillennialism. All right, we're going to have a bunch of big, ugly words in this chapter, but you can be assured that neither Jesus nor the Lutherans invented them. Uh, so we'll just have to work our way. Now, we're going to, get, we're going to define dispensational, and we're going to do that later. We're going to define premillennialism, but premillennialism comes with two other types of millennialism. Post-millennialism and amillennialism. All right, millennialism has to do with the thousand-year reign mentioned in Revelation. We're going to get into this in, in detail in just a few pages. Okay, and pre-post and ah refers to when the Lord is coming, supposedly, or the ah is the odd man out, the one that is not like the others. So, millennialism is this idea that there's going to be a literal earthly thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. Remember that part where he said, my kingdom is not of this world? He kind of didn't mean it. His kingdom is actually of this world, just for, and for a thousand years, it just hasn't come yet. Okay, so that's millennialism. And then is he going to come before the thousand-year reign? premillennialism, or is he going to come after the thousand years where he's not really reigning, um, but he's just, you've got peace in Jerusalem for a thousand years. Is he going to come after? That's postmillennialism. Okay, premillennialism, postmillennialism. And then you've got the other view, which is also known as the right one. And it's <laughs> it's amillennialism, which is Jesus meant what he said when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. There's no literal 1,000-year reign. We're not looking for Jesus to come before it or after it. We're just looking for Jesus to return, like the scriptures say. The amillennial view is the majority view of the church for 2,000 years, and it is very clearly the teaching of the Holy Scriptures. Okay, so that'll give you just a little introduction to pre, post, and amillennial. How much anxiety is amongst the, the pre and post? Well, there's quite a lot because you're, you know, you're waiting for this thing to happen that's political in nature and you're needing everything to line up politically in order to bring that about. Thus, you are, as Wolf Mueller says, constantly having the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And you're, you've got these elaborate checklists of, okay, we need this to happen and this to happen and the other thing to happen. And, of course, we're going to get into um, Israel and, of course, 1948 or 47 and the reconstitution of Israel as a nation state is supposedly one of those boxes being checked off. And next up would be they need to rebuild the temple. And so that would be another one of those boxes checked off. Remember all those commercials? They're not really around all that much anymore, else maybe I'm watching not the right TV channels. But when I was a kid, it was all the send the Jews back to Israel. And I always thought to myself, how are they getting away with this? It's like the most racist thing I've ever heard. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, this was all driven by um, millennialism. We've got, to, we've got to get all the Jews back into Israel so they can do their Jewish stuff so we can get on with the end of the world. And if we don't get them all back there to do their Jewish stuff, then the world's not going to end. I mean, can you imagine Jesus up there like... All right, church, need you to pay for some commercials to be done. We got to get all the Jews back to Jerusalem before I can return. So, get on about it. I mean, it's just when you when you think about it, it's preposterous. So, all right, getting a little ahead of myself. Premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism, and then we're going to talk about dispensationalism, which gets attached to pre and postmillennialism. There are other millennialisms. We'll talk about that. It gets, sometimes it gets as complex as like 
all right, well, what, what do you and your 40 online followers believe? <laughs> all right, so there's a lot of that going on. But dispensationalism and premillennialism, thus dispensational premillennialism, is far and away the most popular in our country, and it's what you're running into. So we haven't got to dispensationalism yet. We'll get into what that means. It kind of comes with a, a, a number of um, ideas that Wolf Mueller has identified for us so we can define what is broadly known as dispensationalism. Dispensationalism, just like the millennialisms, takes on different forms and nobody can agree on what exactly is right. All right, so uh, yeah, just trying to pick back up in the middle of that paragraph where we left off, Wolf Mueller says, in fact, American Christianity is largely caught up in a particular view of the last things called dispensational premillennialism, a theological system that colors its understanding of the scriptures. American Christianity at every turn fails to distinguish between the law and the gospel, and its teaching of the end times is no exception. The Lord's church has always lived in the hope of Jesus' return. We live in the quote-unquote last days. See Hebrews 1-2. So you've already, you've obviously, you know, Sometimes people will come up very gravely and say to me, Pastor Rody, do you think these are the last days? To which I say, well, well yeah, of course. We've been believing that for 2,000 years. <laughs> so you can see Hebrews 1-2 uh, is cited. In many and various ways, God spoke to the prophets of old. But now in these last days he has spoken to us through his son we've been in the last days for a long time and there you can understand too something really important we say well was the author of hebrews wrong he said the last days were in the first century hello maybe he was in error on that point no maybe our definition of the last days is what's in error and the author of hebrews isn't in this breathless panic of like okay well, the temple's got to be destroyed to fulfill Jesus' prophecy. But then the temple's got to be rebuilt because we need that to do our premillennial dispensationalism. No, but so is that what he's saying? Is he saying, okay, everybody watch out. We've got to wait for these things to happen. No, he simply says that these are the last days. What does he mean by last days? There's nothing else coming until the Lord returns. That's what the last days mean. There's, there's no other promise. It's not like we're in the days of Noah waiting for a flood and yet waiting for a Messiah. It's not like we're the days of Abraham waiting for him to have a son and then waiting for a Messiah. It's not like we're in the days of David where we're waiting for a king to come after him and then waiting for that king to return. We're not waiting for multiple things. We're not waiting for multiple phases. We are in the last phase. We are waiting for the last thing. These are the last days. God has no other plans for this era and epoch but to bring the Lord Jesus to return and the new heavens and the new earth and a new age will commence. So these are the last days, the last times. There's nothing, God's not saying through the prophets, hey, this just in. Got a new plan. Got a new thing. Okay. So that's what it means to be in the last days, and that's the biblical perspective on it. So we can get rid of all this panic and drama and, you know, do you think we're in them? And you can also, I think, another thing, as I, as I like to frequently say, aside from the Bible and and good theology, uh, something that will really help you out here is a, just a basic sense of history. And you think of, you think of all the times that have taken place in the history of the world over the last 2,000 years where people would be like, is this the last, is this the end times? And they'd have way more reason to believe it is in this narrow sense than we do today. Think of the Black Plague and the millions and millions and millions of lives lost. And, you know, they go, are we living in the last times? We've been in the last times. We survived that. Look on paper at the 20th century, the century we just came out of. More Christian martyrs than in all other centuries combined. Multiple world wars. 
nuclear bombs being dropped. Are we in the end times? I mean, here we are, we're past that. We've been in the end times all the way through. And there have been times much worse than these times. And so I think it is just also really helpful and sane for us to be like, with the author of Hebrews, with the apostles who write the scriptures, yeah, we've been in the last days, we're waiting for the Lord to return. All these signs that have happened, worse have happened, worse may still happen. We're not waiting for it to even necessarily build into this climax. I mean, think about it. Well, we're all experiencing this, this sense of doom and collapse in the West. How's it going in Africa and, and in China? and The gospel's booming and blossoming. Churches are growing. People are becoming Christian with just one hearing of the gospel. And, it's, and there's economy, of course, where God's blessing goes. Their economies are starting to pick up and they're starting to develop. They don't have a sense that it's the end. They don't have a sense that it's the worst thing ever. So a lot of this is just narrowly our cultural perceptions and to simply just overlay that upon the whole world is not really accurate. So I think with like a sense of humility, we all just have to take a step back and say, the Lord could return this Tuesday or Tuesday a thousand years ago or Tuesday a thousand years from now. That's all we're waiting for. So... We don't need to wig out or stress out. We can simply just wait on his timing and uh, proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And it's really actually kind of refreshing and cheerful to live that way. You're not constantly under this narrative that everything's constantly getting worse because I need it to get worse because I need Jesus to return. And just, hey, things are the way they are. Maybe they are getting worse. Maybe they're getting better. Maybe it's not as bad as we think. Maybe it's worse than we think. Who really cares? It doesn't affect Christians at all. We're waiting for Jesus to return. And he can come any time, and we frequently pray, come Lord Jesus. All right, next week, into the millennialisms, into dispensationalism. Fine-tooth comb, you can ask whatever questions, and I'll see if I can answer them. The Lord be with you.